0: we're going to continue our worship um, we 've done something this year that we haven 't done um, since we started the church really is we 're celebrating Advent uh, this year and Advent is um, a period of time Advent really means um, like preparing and we're preparing for the arrival uh, of the lord jesus and um, it's traditionally it 's a season that uh, that people take time to really focus in, fo- focus in uh, on the true meaning of Christmas. And so we have candles, and uh, the candles all represent um, something, you know, whether it be hope, joy, uh, peace. And uh, so today, we're going to have a couple more Adventers come join me here. And we're going to be lighting um, the, one, two, th- the fourth candle. And the fourth candle is, symbolizes peace. And so I want to call the Advent guys up. We have a um, return appearance from Colin Shimobukuro. Colin, it's your second time, yeah? <clears> huh? <throat> you're like you like an old pro with this. All right. So we're gonna be lighting. You can light all the candles around. All right. Okay. And you know, as we light the candles, it's just a kind of way to to remind us. You know, the first candle, shortest one, represents hope. The second candle. Uh, Represents faith. The third candle represents joy. And the fourth candle now represents peace.
1: I'll be reading Isaiah chapter 7, verse 10 to 14. It says, Later the Lord sent this message to King Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign of confirmation, Ahaz. Make it as difficult as you want, as high as heaven or as deep as the place of the dead. But the king refused. No, he said, I will not test the Lord like that. Then Isaiah said, Listen well, you royal family of David. Isn't it enough to exhaust human patience? Must you exhaust the patience of my God as well? All right then, the Lord himself will give you the sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us.
0: You know, and that really is the heart of Christmas to me. It's the coming of Emmanuel. I just love um, what Isaiah, how he describes who Jesus is. He's Emmanuel. He's God with us. And uh, we're so blessed um, that God is with us. You know, we're going to continue our our series on, on, it's called Peace on Earth. It's really about worship. And, uh, you know, about a a month or so ago, um, I, uh, you know, I was just praying, and uh, I was, actually it was about a couple months ago, and just praying about what is it that God wanted to do uh, during the messages here on Sunday mornings for Christmas. And I just felt God was saying it's about worship. And uh, that, and that um, we needed to have people who would come uh, and share with us uh, who worship is a part of their lives. You know? Because God has called us to be worshipers. And so you know, the first week we had Nathan Yoshida and he talked about the importance of, of, of forgiveness when it comes to worship, that it's hard to worship God if we have unforgiveness in our hearts, and, and and he talked about that, and I thought you know that was just absolutely perfect because it's not something that was theoretical; it was something that Nathan you know that he has lived through. He's had to um, forgive uh, very in very significant ways, and then last week um, my wife Joanne spoke, and uh, you know because I, I see her so often uh, i know that worship is a part of her life that her answer to everything is is pray we need to pray and we need to worship i don't even have to ask her because i know her answer to any question we've got to pray and we got to worship and so she had come up and 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 talked to all of us about the importance of prayer i was really really powerful last week and then um and then I felt, it was just kind of strange, I felt like God said to ask uh, this young person named John Morimoto to come and share. And uh, I said, God, are, are you sure? And, and he says, yep. And, uh, you know, I mean, I didn't hear an audible voice, yep. Like, but I just knew in my spirit. And so uh, about a month ago, I asked John, I said, hey, John, um, uh, would you be willing to speak on Sunday about worship? And his eyes, you know, was like, he like, oh. And then what he shared was about five or six months ago uh, that he had a dream that I was going to ask him to speak. And it was going to be speaking on worship. And it wasn't just one of those regular dreams that, you know, you had too many, too much pizza or something the night before. He kind of knew that there was something significant about that. So he started to, to write out a message, you know, uh, on worship. And so when I asked him, it was like, oh. I guess that was really from the Lord, and so um, I wanted to, to invite John up. And John is um, for those of you, for those of you who don't know, uh, John is a teach, math teacher at Roosevelt High School. Uh, he works with our high schoolers, and, and God's doing something really, um, something really good with our high schools. You know, we've been talking. i mean, You're going to hear a lot more when I talk about church is family and family is church and 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 part of that came to me because what john is doing as he's seeking to disciple our high schoolers and one day we can have him talk um to all of us about what he's doing as far as how do we disciple and seeing church as family and family as um as church and so um yeah let's just pray for john john you nervous
1: Yeah. (coughs) <coughs> yep yeah no we're good yeah. we're good we're good yeah
0: um you know last week i, I told mom um bring honor to our family um, the same goes for you too all right okay because you're a reflection of me all right yeah you know I mean? so you cannot let us down anyway it's just, it's just, it's counseling. Just one of the reasons why i wanted john to share as well is i wanted us to 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 have a picture of what God's calling us to. God's calling us to reach the next generations. We gotta, we have to, all right? And so I feel like today is like the start that we have to reach the next generations. So let's, uh, let's pray for John. Father, we just pray. Uh, thank you for speaking to him um, months ago of what you wanted. That nothing happens by accident that you wanted him to speak today. And so thank you for speaking to him. And I pray right now that you would speak through him, that you would speak through him to all of us, that you would touch our hearts, that we would have a heart-to-heart connection with you, mm-hmm. and really what it means to worship you, especially especially when the pressure's on. And so we just thank you, Lord. Use John now in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. Yeah. All right, all right. All righty, thank Don't you. Don't shame the family.
1: <coughs> thank you, thanks Thanks for that. Uh, it's super funny. We were in the back praying before service started, and, and my dad kind of shared the same thing with some of the people who were there earlier and were kind of setting up. And as he's telling the story, he kind of looks at me and waits for me to finish it. And I just kind of look back at him, and I very timidly tell them that, yeah, I've been working on this for about five months. And the reason I told him that I was very timid is I didn't want to tell anyone I've been working on this for five months, because if it's not good, I don't want you guys to be like, that was five months. What was it? And, and so what does he do, being the loving father he is? He tells everyone, even though I asked him not to five minutes ago, but that's fine. Anyway, so today we're going to be talking a little bit about worshiping and specifically how to worship in our personal battles. Two things you need to know about me. Number one, as he said, I'm a math teacher, which means I'm extremely logical. Uh, a lot of what I do is built in on logic. There has to be reasons for everything that's happening. Second thing is... I am a youth guy here at Kakaku Kaka Christian Fellowship, and the reason why those two things are important is six days out of seven, I'm surrounded by high schoolers, so this is the most amount of actual sentient adults that I get to talk to throughout the entire year. So if I say certain things that are a little bit more slangy and stuff, it's because I'm sorry, I work with kids all the time, my dad sees me, so kids all around. So basically, a little bit, to kick us all off, I wanted to talk a little bit about me and just tell a really quick story. Now, I used to work at uh, University of Hawaii, and I used to work there as a student help, and one of the things that we used to do is every year we would have a grad party for some of the undergrads and graduate students there, and what we would do is we used to make juice, and and we used to have uh, potlucks and stuff, and one of my jobs as the student help was to make juice. And if you guys have ever made juice before, basically what you do is you get like this juice concentrate, and then you get like the the what's that thing called? Cooler, thank you. We get the cooler, pour the juice in, pour the water in, and you mix it, it's all good. I am a very logical, very exacting person. I was uh, in Calculus 2 in high school. I was in math team in high school. I like doing Sudoku and logic and riddles in my free time. And because of all of this, when I was tasked with doing that, and they said, we don't have a measuring cup, I did the most stupid thing that you can think of. Now, most normal people would have a really obvious solution to this. But what I did was I was asked to make half a jug Of juice, And so for me, what I figured out is, let's think how much water do we need in that, what's my ratio, and let's measure this. But I don't have a measuring cup, so what am I going to do? I found the volume of that uh, little jug. It's a cylinder on top, or excuse me, it's a cone on top with a cylinder on the bottom. So I measured the different parts, and then I wrote out what the volume was. And then I said, okay, this is exactly how much to the fluid ounce, this is how many inches that water, that juice needs to go down. I didn't have anything to measure it with, so in order to get this done, what I did was I need to measure the width. I need to measure the circumference. How do you measure that? With a ruler, but the ruler doesn't bend, but you know what does bend? Shoelaces, so I took off my shoelace. I wrapped it around, and then I measured it out there. At the end of this, I said, okay, this is exactly how much water I need. This is exactly how much juice I need. I figured it all out. It took me 25 minutes, a shoelace, a ruler, and two sheets of paper, but I figured it out, put it all together, tasted great. Almost through the potluck, we run out of juice, and they say, okay, we need to go make some more. So what I say is, hold up, let me take off my shoelace, grab my paper, and let's figure this out again. And then my coworker says, or we could just pour about half, fill the rest up with water, and taste. And she took three minutes water, juice, and a really, really big smirk, and it tasted just as good as mine. Now, the reason why I'm telling you this is because I have a slight tendency to overcomplicate things. Yeah, so I measured how much this was. I figured how much juice was in here. I figured out the volume of the cone, everything, and then I kind of figured it all out, and, and it was just it was not very good. <laughs> but, But that's the thing. For me, when I'm doing anything, I have to overcomplicate things. I have to kind of figure out what's the logical math solution. My background is in math. My background is in solving these really weird word problems. And I do that in real life. You were like, what are you going to use this in real life? I'm like, hey, man, you were going to make juice. And, and that's kind of how I work on things. That's my natural response to things, to be logical about it, to have street smarts and book smarts. And, and I have some friends who are here. I, a lot of people who know me, they're, they're probably Not even surprised because, like, yeah, you would take the most stupid, backhanded, roundabout way to figure out a really simple problem of just pour and taste. And that didn't even occur to me, you know? And similarly, when we're talking about worship, worship isn't something that's necessarily supernatural for me, you know? I don't necessarily think that that's something that, you know, when we're having a good day or a bad day, very rarely do we just stop and say, okay, I'm going to go put on some worship music or Christian music or anything like that. It's not necessarily in our natural bend. But the problem is, whenever you're faced with a challenge, whether it's making juice, whether it's just having a bad day, or or anything else, the way we practice things is the way that things happen. The way we practice, what we say is practice makes permanent. Whatever you practice, that's how you're going to do things. As a math teacher, I tell my kids over and over and over, I'd rather you do five problems perfectly than 50 problems and just kind of halfway through. Because the way you practice is the way that things are going to work. So when we're talking about how to worship in our personal struggles, in our personal battles, it starts From the beginning. You can't just have it happen there. The way you practice is the way that things are going to go. For me, uh, today we're going to talk about three different points and and how to really kind of build that up, how to start by worshiping in the good times and, and, and how that helps us practice worshiping when things are a little bit harder. So our first point is this. If it's in your bulletins, hopefully it should be there. Point number one says this. We worship God in our victories to remind us that God is the true victor. We worship God in our victories to remind us that God is the true victor. Now it may seem really obvious to be like, hey, something really great happens, we're gonna worship God and and we're just gonna be like, yeah, thank you God so much for for helping us out with this. But for me, I notice it's not necessarily something that's easy for me. It's not something that's natural. When something good happens, I think of all the hard work that I put into it. I think of all of the things that happened externally that kind of made this all work out. When good things happen, my first response isn't to get on my knees and pray. And when that does happen, it kind of feels a little weird. Like, just look at any athlete. When a lot of people, they do that whole, that thing. Very rarely do people think, oh my gosh, they love God. Right, like how often we see that and we just kind of think, oh, maybe they're just show voting, maybe they're just kind of putting it in there. And it's really interesting to me is that when things work out in my favor, so often people will be like, oh my gosh, hey, you know, this, this all worked out for you, uh, it was exactly as you planned, how did that work out? I said, well, I prayed, I asked God for it, I, I, and, and God just worked things out, and this is the response I get. Like that's kind of how it is. It feels a little weird telling people, oh yeah, God worked things out. And and they have this like questioning look in their mind. It's not always easy to worship God because it's so easy for us to focus on ourselves. Sometimes it's really hard to worship God when good things are happening because it's so easy to focus on ourselves. One of the things that I do uh, is I love to read the Bible. So when we're going through these, I'm going to rip through a bunch of scripture. And then I'm just going to condense it down, because to me, it's so important to know the context of how things are kind of happening. So today, first thing we're going to talk about is King David and how King David really exemplified what it means to worship when times are good. So first, we're going to go through 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 12 through 21. I'm going to rip through this really quickly. Follow along if you guys can, since it's not up here. That's okay. I'll recap it after at the end. So <clears throat> here we go. Now, King David was told, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed Edom and everything he has because the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephah, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. While he and all of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpets, Uh, As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. When she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him with all her heart. In verse 20, we're going to jump forward a little bit. It says this, When David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, Oh, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls and of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. In verse 21, it says, David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he, was, when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people, Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes, but by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. See, David wasn't worried at all about what other people thought. He was just saying, you know what? The ark of God, the symbol of God's presence, the symbol of the covenant between us and God, the the symbol of the source of my rise from a shepherd boy to a king, the symbol of God and how great he is, is coming into this city. Am I really going to care about what other people think? No, I'm just going to praise God because worship wasn't about David. Worship was about God and God's faithfulness. And because of that, he's like, you know what, dancing, that's not really proper. I'm going to dance. You know what, my robes are getting in the way. I'm just going to wear my undergarments and I'm just going to dance for God with everything that I have. And you know what, even if uh, the the royal court and, and the, my wife is, thinks that it's wrong, I'm going to just do it because it's for God, because God's the one who is being praised. I'm not doing Doing this for the servant girl's eyes. I'm not doing this for the court's eyes. I'm doing this before God. And I was dancing before God. And that's the idea that we have to have. you know. And for me, it's so difficult because when I read that, I'm just thinking, you know what? I stink at dancing. I really cannot dance. If I were to dance in front of you guys, that would be something you pull out your phones, throw on YouTube because you will get a lot of people laughing at it. I have been requested not to dance at different things because I have three left feet. It's so bad. But for me to to think that, you know what, could I dance? Could I do that before God if I'm doing it unto him? Is he worthy of that? Is that something that God deserves out of me, even if I don't have anything good to give? You know, and, and that's a thing that I don't think about often. I don't think when I'm worshiping that, you know what, this is for God. Sometimes it's so easy to think, oh, am I singing on key? Oh, this song's a little slower than I'm used to. And, and when we're worshiping, how often I just focus on myself and, and what I'm singing. Like, wow, this is way too low for me. I'm singing way off key. This is really bad. How often do I just think that instead of just thinking, hey, you know, I'm going to praise God and God doesn't care. You know, the reason we worship isn't because of us. We worship God. And it's important to worship God in our victories. And it's important to bank these things because it's hard to remember God's faithfulness when things are really bad. But when we bank these times that when God is so faithful, when God comes through, then when times are hard, we're saying, But God was faithful then and He'll be faithful now. Being able to bank the good times reminds us that God is the true victor. Second thing, we worship God when things seem unjust to remind us of God's grace. We worship God when things seem unjust to remind us of God's grace. As a teacher, one of the things that I have to deal with the most is this idea of fairness. It is so important for kids that I be fair. Kids can say, you know what, he's super strict, but he's fair. He's really, really lax, but he's fair. This idea of justice is so important to them, and they will jump at anything that they think is unfair unless it's unfair in their favor. You know, I had a class once that did that was doing so well. They were doing extra work. They were studying from the beginning of class to the end. Every single person was helping one another. They were getting crazy good grades on their quizzes. They were doing so well that I said, you know what, today, instead of going over a lesson, we are days ahead. Instead of doing a lesson, I'm gonna do a game. We're gonna have a little extra credit opportunity and it's gonna be great. We're gonna have fun because you guys earned it. All of my other classes found out, and they're like, well, what about us? How come we don't get a free day like them? And I'm like, well, because they earned it. But to them, they didn't see that. The only thing that they saw is, well, well they get a free day today. We have to work and do math. Like, how is this fair? You know, they don't see the big picture. And, and sometimes we're like that sometimes, where it's really easy for us to just focus on the things that are unjust, And forget about the fact that God has given us so much grace. This was really exemplified by Nate a few weeks back when he was talking about that parable where this guy owed a lot of money and and he was forgiven. But the second that he saw someone who owed him money, he's like, hey, where's my money? And he refused to forgive him. It's so easy for us to fall into that trap. Another story that I wanted to talk about, which uh, my mom talked about last week, was uh, Paul and Silas. Um, and we're gonna recap it. So because of that, there's a lot going on here, uh, and I'm gonna read through it really, really, really quickly. But again, I will recap it after. <clears throat> so in Acts 16, verse 16 through 40, it says this: Once we were going to a place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, "These men are servants of the Most High God." She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around to her and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews. They are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. This is important. We'll come back to this later. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. The magistrates ordered them to be stripped, beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison. The jailer commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell, fastened their feet in stocks. At about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword, was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped, but Paul shouted, do not harm yourself, we are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your whole household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them, washed their wounds. Then immediately he and his house were baptized. The jailer brought them to his home and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. So we're just going to pause there really quickly. See, when I look at the Bible and stuff like that, I'm a huge nerd. So for me, I'm looking at what does that mean they were beaten with rods and stuff? And if you kind of look up what that looked like, it was crazy. Like people wouldn't be able to walk after that. Being flogged would tear the skin from your flesh and all of this was happening to Paul and Silas and it was not pleasant. So for them to be able to sit in that cell and and worship God was something that was just, it's not something I think I could do. You know, if a driver cuts me off, I have to stop playing the worship movie music, put on something a little bit more aggressive, and uh, <clears throat> make sure to drive a little bit more defensively in the future. But for me, just being able to go through that and still be able to worship God and praise God—and it said the other prisoners were watching. They were an example. Is driving defensively a good example to God? And, and for me, it's difficult because justice is so important to me. Making sure that things are fair, because in life, things aren't always fair. So maybe I gotta work and push it a little bit more. But regardless of that, Paul and Silas, they were beaten, flogged, to the point where most likely they probably had trouble walking, and then they just took it and they praised God. Now, if you remember, the reason that they were that happened to them was they said, hey, they're Jewish citizens, they are doing things that are un uh, excuse me, it says these men are Jews, they're throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful to us Romans. Uh, to accept or practice. So it's saying, hey, these guys are doing something that as Romans, we're not allowed to accept or practice. Then in verse 35, it says this. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. You can leave, go in peace. So they said, hey, after you guys had this really rough night, you guys can just go. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens and threw us in prison. And now, they want to get rid of us quietly? No, let them calm themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of prison, they went to Lydia's house, and they met with the brothers and sisters, encouraged them, and then they left." At this time, Paul and Silas were Roman citizens in Philippi. And again, like I said, I'm a little bit of a nerd, so I had to look to see why that's so important. I'm like, why is it important that they're Roman citizens in Philippi? Philippi at the time was a Roman colony, and as such, they didn't want to anger the Romans. Roman law was so valued, especially among the Romans, this idea of Roman citizenship was really, really high. Rome did not extend past Rome. Rome never extended past Rome. Everything that they, con- they conquered, they said was a Roman colony, a Roman territory, a Roman conquest. But Rome was Rome because this idea of Roman citizenship was we are better than everyone else. And anyone outside, we might conquer them, we might take over their lands, but at the end of the day, we're Rome and we're the best. So much so that they had this thing called the palmarium and it was a line around Rome and you couldn't bring swords in, you couldn't do a lot of things in there. So much so that that if you conquered a land and you came back, you had to wait outside the palmarium in order to enter the city because the second you crossed that line, you were no longer a conqueror. You were no longer a general. You were no longer anything other than a Roman citizen because being a Roman citizen was so, so, so important to them. It was such a high honor that even if you were like someone like Julius Caesar, when he came back from conquering, he waited outside the palmarium because he said, hey, if I'm gonna enter the city, all of my accomplishments are gone. Because at the end of the day, all that matters is I'm a Roman citizen. Being a Roman citizen was such a high honor. So they knew this. And because Paul and Silas knew this, at any time if they mentioned, hey, we're Roman citizens, at the very least, they would have had to stop and double check like, hey, hold up, hold up, hold up. They're Roman citizens. we got to check this out. we got to make sure that we're not doing anything unlawful. Because if we screw with them, we're screwing with Rome, and that's not a good thing. We don't want to have to deal with that. At any time, not only did they have justice on their side, not only did they have the law on their side, they knew that they could have stopped it at any time because they knew that they were afraid of the Romans. But they didn't. And to me, it's so difficult to think that. Like, how on earth... If something's going on with me, if, if, if I know that I'm in the right, I'm going to logically argue with that person until I'm proved I'm right. I always joke that my older sister and I, we butt heads a lot. We have argued about whose turn it was to do the dishes for hours. And I said, hey, remember five months ago, we said this was the order that we're gonna go in. We followed it for the past three months. How on earth could you say it's my turn when you obviously didn't do it last month or the month before, so it must mean it's your turn. And then I had to logically pull out. I'm not kidding. It was literally hours that it would happen. The second we bring up the dishes, even to this day, I don't live at home. My sister lives in LA. When she comes home, if we bring up the dishes, my dad goes, oh. My sister goes, oh. My mom goes, oh, and we go, "Mm." it's it's one of those things that because justice demands that I obviously can't go another week washing the dishes, I'm going to argue with her on this for hours. The question is, is this the hill you want to die on? My answer is yes. I'm going to fight this because it's wrong. And, and, and that's my natural bent. And so when we have this idea of Paul and Silas saying, hey, you know what? I'm right. I know I can get out of this at any time, but I'm going to let this happen because God's in control. I want to make sure that, you know what? These prisoners, this is an opportunity for them to see us worshiping, to see the God that we praise. You know, if they did pull the Roman Citizen card, maybe they would have just been asked to leave the city. But because that they got beaten, they could say, you know what, we're going to leave on our own terms. We're going to visit the church here. We're going to visit the believers here. We're going to encourage them, and then we'll leave on our own terms. They gain so much more by giving up their rights, giving up what's just. And it's so hard to do that. For me sometimes especially, because I believe so strongly in logic. I believe so strongly in justice. It's hard to remember that God is a God of grace, and he has forgiven me so much, so how can I just hold on to this? And that comes back to our first point, that when the good times happen, we got to remember God's faithfulness. We got to remember, oh, hey, you know, God was gracious here. God is faithful, that even though that this isn't just, it doesn't matter, because in the big scale of things, God is just. We practice. How we practice is how we perform. Practice makes permanent. It could be something as small as I'm driving down the road, someone cuts in at the very last second over a double light and makes me break, and I'm just like, okay, buddy, and it could be something as simple as that, or it could be something big, like my students saying, hey, you know what, you lost my papers. Parents get involved, counselors get involved, and I'm just like, man, you haven't turned in anything all year. I can't lose what I never had, you know? And, and for me, it's so easy to want to just fight it and just focus on justice, but I got to remember that God is a God of grace, And if he has forgiven me much, then how much more should I forgive others? All this coming together for point three, it says this. We worship God even in our personal battles to remind us that he is the reason for worship. We worship God even in our personal battles to remind us that he is the reason for worship. God has been so faithful in my life. Uh, When I was a little kid, I was homeschooled um, up until I was in ninth grade. And from ninth grade, I went to Roosevelt, met some really great people there, and I loved it there at Roosevelt. From the time I was a senior in high school, I decided I wanted to be a teacher. As we were homeschooled, I used to help my little sister in math, and I used to help all of my friends in math at, at school and stuff, so much so that if you asked a lot of people, hey, do you remember John? Almost everyone just says, oh yeah, he used to help me out with math. That was the only thing that they remember about me, and, and that's fine. You know. Um, I loved it. I was like, you know what, from the time I was like a junior in high school, I was like, I'm going to be a teacher. I'm going to be a math teacher. And if I can, I'm going to be a math teacher at Roosevelt because I love Roosevelt. But when I became a teacher and I started teaching at Roosevelt, all of this was like, you know, God worked everything out. He gave me the one thing I asked for, And and as I was doing that, I was spending literally about 100 hours a week lesson planning, grading, all this other stuff because I did not feel prepared. So I would look up how to teach. I would look up child psychology. I would do all of this stuff. I'd go in on Saturdays. On average, I was leaving at about 10.30 at night, some nights, and then I would uh, come in at about 6 o'clock in the morning. I would spend all day there. Saturdays, I would work, and I was just working so much. And I just remember having a conversation with one of my students, and they just told me straight to my face, man, you're like one of the worst teachers I've ever had. How is that funny? That hurt, man. But, <laughs> anyway, but, uh, but that, that really hurt. Like It was one of those things where I'm like, I have one job. I have one destiny. I asked God, what do I do with my life? He said, teacher, everything worked out. I was teaching at 21 years old in the job that I wanted to be for the rest of my life. A lot of people who were here at KCF were saying, John, you would make a great teacher. I can see you becoming a teacher. A lot of people were saying that. And the second I get into a classroom, I have no idea what I'm doing. So much so that someone says to my face, you are the worst teacher I've ever had. And I was like, God, why did you lead me here? How on earth am I supposed to, like, what do I do now? Go back to school? Like, I keep talking to my youth, to my friends about how you are faithful, how you led me. And you led me to this dead end where I stink. Like, what on earth do I do? And that's where it's important to bank the good times. Because all those times where God has came through, where I said, God, I don't want to go into any debt as a student, and I graduated with $10.47 in my bank account. The times where I said, hey, you know, God, I'm not going to have enough time to study for this final, so God, you got to come through. And then God did. All of those times that I banked, that I remembered that God is the true victor, when the times came that life was really, really difficult, I really didn't want to open my Bible. I felt so wrong singing, my God, you'll never fail. Jesus, you never fail. Because I was just like, but I, I don't know if I believe that anymore. You know, my situation is everything that I built my entire life upon is crumbling and and it seems like, yeah, one comment like that might not seem much, but that was the general feel of the class. People are like, you, got, you are one of the worst teachers. You're so strict. You have no idea what you're doing. And like, it was so hard to get their respect and, and just constantly having to deal with that while putting in hundreds, like 100 hours a week. I felt like, man, what else can I do? What else am I supposed to do? I feel like I'm doing everything I can. I feel like I'm doing everything right. But at the end of the day, it's not enough. And it just felt so bad. And I remember I would come home, I would pull out my guitar, and I would just start worshiping. I would just start praising God, and I was like, you know, God, right now I cannot praise you. Like, I'm saying this, I really don't mean it. I know that you're God who is faithful, but I just, I just can't bring myself to mean this right now. But sometimes it's not about us. Worship is never about us it wasn't about God, my situation is great, so I'm gonna praise you. It was about God, you are a God who is, is gracious. You are a God who is righteous. You are a God who is just. You are a God who is fair. You're a God who is always with us. As they were reading earlier, Emmanuel means God with us. God, if you're a God who is all powerful, with us all the time, then you're a God who's worthy to be praised, even if right now, I, I just feel like for the first time in my life, I don't have a future. In Luke chapter eight, verse 23 to 25, it says this. One day, Jesus and his disciples uh, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into the boat, set out, they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped. And they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him saying, master, master, we're gonna drown. He got up, rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Where is your faith? He asked the disciples. Where is your faith? In fear and amazement, they asked one another, who is this? He commands even the wind's and the water, and they obey him. Jesus had been with these men. He performed miracles, shown them supernatural things. In, in the previous chapter, in Luke 7, he actually raises someone from the dead. Uh, widow comes to him with her son and says, hey, can you fix this? He's like, yep, raised from the dead, that's it. And, and even through all of this, just because things got a little life-threatening and they were gonna drown, that they started freaking out. And for me, that's kind of what it felt like. When I read that, I was like, you know, that's, that's exactly where I am. God's been faithful every single step along my journey. But the second that I'm like, oh, maybe I'm not good enough. I just, couldn't, I just couldn't bring myself to praise God, to trust God. I was like, maybe I gotta work harder. Maybe I gotta think about a new career path. I'm glad I majored in math, not education, because I can use that math degree for other things. I was thinking about jumping ship. But God is a God who's faithful. The Bible continually talks how the Israelites, disciples, early church, and everyone since the beginning has been shown how faithful God is and they keep screwing up. They're like, God, we'll never turn on you. And then they turn on him. And over and over again, that happens. And, and, and so for me, just looking at that, it's so important to have that foundation of, hey, when times are good, we praise God. When times are unjust, we praise God. Because when times get really hard, The way you practice is the way that you perform. If you're like me and you're super logical and you're gonna use shoestrings and rulers to figure out how much juice to make, you know what? The second that that actually happens, that's what you're gonna do. If the second that anything goes wrong, you're saying, you know what? I'm the one who got me here. I'm the one who's gonna get me through. If that's the way that you operate, the second that things go wrong, you're gonna say, I'll take care of this myself. But if when times are good, you praise God. When things are unjust, you praise God. When things are hard, what do you think you're gonna do? And that's why it's so important to build that up. And because of that, for me, I just love the Psalms. I love the Psalms because sometimes I can't sing about God's glory. Sometimes I can't even tell God, God, here's the things that I'm thankful for, because I just can't see it. And I love the Psalms because a lot of times the Psalm writers are just as whiny as I am. They'll start saying, God, my enemies surround me. God, this is so bad. Oh my gosh, everything's going wrong. But you, oh God, be not far from me. You, God, are my strength and shield. You guide me through uh, streams and things. Anyway, but, <laughs> sorry, I was doing, I was like audit, and then I totally forgot it. Anyway, but because of that, the Psalms sometimes help me to, to ground myself and to remind myself that worship isn't about me. It's about who God is. And the Psalms so clearly put that into play. So there's two Psalms that I want to give you guys that, have, that I constantly come back to. I literally come back to these nearly every week. The first psalm is Psalm 69, verse 29 to 33. It says this, But as for me, afflicted and in pain, may your salvation, God, protect me. I will praise God's name in song and glorify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox, more than a bull with its horns and hooves. The poor will see and be glad. O you who seek God, may your hearts live. The Lord hears the needy and does not despise his captive people. Worshiping is not a selfish act. We don't do it because we feel good. We don't do it because our situation is good. We do it because of who our father is. We do it because of who God is. And in these times where things seem really, really bad, it helps us center ourselves and remember, you know what? Really, how bad is this? If the God who was faithful before, is he gonna be faithful now? It puts it into perspective. And it reminds us that the focus of worship is on God. The second one is Psalm 116, verse five through nine. In Psalm 116, verse five through nine, it says this, the Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion. The Lord protects the unwary. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return to rest my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. For you, Lord, have delivered me from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before the Lord and the land of the living. Sometimes, Verse 7, return to rest, my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. That's just something I have to remind myself over and over. There are some times where I just feel that anxiety building up in your chest, and it's like, God, return to rest, my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. We don't worship God because of our situation, we worship God because of who He is. Thank the good times. The way we practice is the way that we perform, practice makes permanent. Even if it's just small the times where we say, you know, I'm gonna praise God because times are good. I'm gonna praise God because times are bad. I'm gonna praise God because I don't feel like praising. Those are the times where when we encounter our biggest struggles, we can say, but this is my foundation. This is the only way I know how to do things, and I'm gonna do it, and I'm gonna praise God. Maybe you're like me, and you're not someone who's a really great singer, or you're not someone who's super musical, and and all you can do in your mind is you're just gonna say, you know what, The, the Psalms say this you know what, this song says this and I'm just gonna hum along in my heart. I'm gonna close my eyes. Maybe you'll raise your hands. Maybe your hands will be down. Maybe the only thing you'll do is tap your feet. Maybe the only thing is your eyes will be open and you're just meditating on the words. But what it says is that our worship to God is better than any offering could ever give. And so we don't do it because we are amazing. We don't do it because that's our talent. We do it because, hey God, I'm gonna give you this and this is what I got. That's enough. That's enough. When times are really hard, remind yourself, return to rest, O oh my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this time that we can just come and gather as a church, Father God. We can listen to your word, and we can just remember how faithful you are, that you are God who is faithful. You are God who is justice. You are God who is righteous, Father God. And God, sometimes it feels like it's a struggle to pray. Sometimes when it feels like we're going through battles, that there's just no way of winning, that it's hard for us to just praise you. But God, you are a God who is faithful. You've never failed us and you never will. So God, I just pray that as we encounter struggles, as we encounter good times, that we would always remember to praise you, Lord.
0: Jesus, name.